Good morning, friends. It is good to be with you this morning. Um, so I just I want to reiterate just one thing uh, that uh, Mr. Seacrest uh, said. Uh, that is, next Sunday we're having uh, what we hope to be a very short business meeting immediately following uh, the service. But then we're going to have a time of fellowship. If you haven't noticed the pattern, we try to have a, a church-wide fellowship event uh, somewhere uh, around the beginning of every month, uh, so about 12 a year. Uh, and uh, this is going to be this month's uh, fellowship event. However, along with it is a, a really important conversation for the life of this church uh, around the, the topic of that elevator. <laughs> this is a, uh, as you might imagine, a big deal. Uh, we haven't done anything to this building since it was, uh, at least anything of this significance, since it was built. Uh, we've, we've certainly done things to it. Put new lighting in, for example, uh, recently, which uh, still, still makes me happy. <laughs> um, but uh, this is the sort of thing, well, one, let's just be honest, it's going to cost a lot of money. And uh, we want everybody bought in. We want you all understanding why we think this is uh, something uh, worth doing. We, we want to have this conversation as a church body so that uh, if we choose to go through it, and we have not made this decision uh, just yet, so, so we're clear, it's, it's kind of, we're, we're still in the initial phases of this, but if we go through with this, we, we want everybody on board. We don't want this to be um, what I'll call a, a, a red carpet moment where the church splits because uh, of the carpet color that, that gets chosen uh, rather than of, uh, something you know, of, of much more significance than that. Um, so please uh, come, enjoy the fellowship time, uh, and participate in, in this important conversation that's going to happen uh, next Sunday after church. All right, no more announcements. Uh, let's begin with prayer and get into this. Heavenly Father, we come this morning uh, seeking, as always, your very presence, your nearness. We come giving thanks uh, for the work of Christ in our own lives. We come praising you and offering you glory. And may we do so with pure hearts. And Lord, we ask that you send your spirit in this place now. Many of us have already felt it in this place this morning, and we ask that continue. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, very quickly, I want to review uh, where we've been so far. So we are continuing in the book of Galatians. We've made it through two chapters. We're going to do chapter three in two segments this week and next week. And uh, just ever so briefly, what's happened in chapters one and two, in case uh, you're either new or, or uh, uh, just haven't quite uh, grasped what's happened, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, we get Paul defending his own character, his own apostolicity. He is indeed somebody who has been sent, uh, not just in any ordinary sending. He has been sent from Jesus himself and has had this uh, experience, a Damascus Road experience where he meets the risen Savior. And so he is a living, walking, breathing testimony to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And this gives him a certain authority to speak from. 
He then, in chapter, at the end of chapter 2, gets to his thesis, uh, which is that apparently there's something behind the scenes going on with these Galatian people where they have received the good news of Jesus Christ, and they've said, yes, we're on board with that. And then somebody has come in and convinced them that, oh yeah, on top of that, you still have to keep uh, all the entirety of the law, right? And so the thesis that happens at the end of chapter 2, and, and just so we are clear, 2.15 through the end is Paul's like, uh, you could read that any number of times and you're going to keep getting things that pop out of it for you. So if you ever want a passage that just keeps giving and giving, there's one. Uh, and, and in it, he, he really, he pits, he, he gives two options. He says righteousness with God, which is to say um, uh, nearness with God or, or right relationship with God or right standing with God uh, or, or being a, a child of God, as we just sang. Um, this happens, uh, he says, you've got two options sitting before you, either by works of the law or by Christ's death and resurrection. These are your two options. And of course, we know what he says, right? And that is, he says, it's only by one way, Christ's death. This is what makes uh, righteousness possible. Righteousness is not possible through the works of the law, right? Okay, we've level set, and now we're jumping in to chapter three. And in chapter three, um, what we get is uh, a bit of a funny sermon for the beginning of Lent. Here's what I mean. Uh, Lent is a time of, uh, of, of sackcloth and ashes, right? It's a time of repentance, and it's a time uh, where, we, where we take stock uh, of who we are and whose we are, and maybe some of uh, the, the moral failings that have uh, crept their way into our hearts and lives. And we offer those back to God. And we, and we get ready and we prepare ourselves for the journey that is ahead. Lent, if it's nothing, it's a journey. It's a journey, and the way I have always said it, is a journey to the cross, right? Where uh, those things have then been nailed to the cross for us. Those, those sins and those failings and those ways in which we've fallen short, uh, that is nailed up on the cross, Praise be to Jesus, right? And then uh, three days later, on Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. And you might be tempted to think, like, that's the end uh, of Lent. And I guess technically it is, okay? <laughs> but that's actually not the end of the journey. And uh, today, as I got ready for today, it was a, it was a good reminder of that for me. Uh, you see, because the end of the journey, believe it or not, is not... The, the cross, the end of the journey is not even resurrection. The end of the journey, so to speak, it, maybe it's the beginning of the journey, uh, it's just a bit further down the road, which is the day of Pentecost, right? It's the day where the Spirit gets poured out. Are you with me? So Pentecost happens, you know, 50 days after Easter, right? Uh, and that's the day where, uh, in our own lives, we, we feel uh, and we, we come to like, the fruition uh, of what Jesus has done on the cross and in the resurrection, and now we live these spirit-filled lives. Why I'm saying any of this at all is because this is where Paul leads us to uh, in Galatians chapter 3. 
In Galatians 3, for the very first time, he uses the word spirit. And then he's going to use it like a thousand more times in the rest of Galatians. And it's clear, it's like he's been waiting to use the, the atom bomb. Like this is, like he's been waiting to use this weapon and it's been standing in his arsenal and now it's time and he delivers this, you know, uh, the spirit. This is what we're aiming at, right? So let's go ahead and open. By the way, I have uh, with me... Uh, if, I, I love this. Uh, do you know what this is? This is my little uh, ESV journal uh, for the book of Galatians. I, I just bought this for the very first time ever uh, for this series. And I, I think I might do this into the future. I highly recommend it. Uh, they have one for every book of the Bible. And uh, on one side sits uh, the ESV. And then the other side sits like blank, a blank page so that you can write notes uh, all through it. Highly, highly recommend it. Um, so, with that, I'm preaching out of my, my journal today. Let's start in chapter 3. <laughs> Paul's still upset. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Um, if I ever say this to you, uh, you know that something's gone wrong. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and here, here's Paul, pulling no punches. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And you might be confused at this point, uh, or you might think, wait, in what way was Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified to these Galatian people? They're not even close to the city of Jerusalem. How is this possible? And um, let's just... uh, very clearly say the Galatian people did not actually see Jesus die. It's a, I don't know if this is important to say or not, but they, they almost certainly did not. What he's saying is that the message, this idea of being publicly portrayed, uh, involves like actually a, a reading. Maybe it's of a prior letter. Uh, maybe it's of one of the Gospels. Maybe uh, it's not clear exactly uh, what it is that he's referencing here, but he's saying that their eyes have seen this thing. They, they've known uh, that Jesus was publicly crucified, right? And yet they have been bewitched in a way that says that's not enough. And this is the real problem here. That's not enough. But he goes on. Uh, And in in verse 2, he says, Let me ask you only this. And here he's getting ready to drop his little, his his bomb. Uh, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And there it is again, right? The the dichotomy. He sets up the two things, uh, works of the law on the one hand and, and faith on the other hand, right? And by faith, uh, I think he means uh, that we're talking here, Jesus' death and re- Jesus' faith uh, by, by, by dying and then uh, God being faithful to, uh, to raise him from the dead. And so he's asking, he, he's not just asking, he's saying, he's saying, you received the Spirit. We know you did. And in the question you now have to ask is, did you receive that? Because you kept all 613 laws that are sitting uh, in your Old Testament. Or did you uh, receive the Spirit because uh, of your faith? 
right? That, that you heard, that, that you participated somehow in the faith of Jesus. That Jesus' faith uh, is now part of your life and you had faith in him, right? We all know, again, uh, what, he's, what he's driving at here. And so he simply says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And here he sets up a second dichotomy. So if the first dichotomy is uh, this, this issue of, of works of the law and faith, well then the second dichotomy is, is what we find here, which is, is flesh and and spirit, right? And so he's saying, like, I mean, he's saying what he's saying. You, you began with the spirit, which is what we're going for. And now you're being perfected by, by the flesh. And he's saying that's not how this works, right? It's a little bit like Jesus. When Jesus comes and Jesus uh, begins to speak about various uh, laws that you find in your Old Testament. And he might say something like, uh, it is said, don't murder, right? And, and Jesus says, yes, this is true enough, right? But what is his response? He's essentially saying that's, that's actually not enough because not murdering, that might be like a way to, uh, to stop your flesh, so to speak, uh, from doing certain things, but there's still something rumbling around in your heart that needs to be deeper level. And so Jesus uses the language of the heart. Sometimes we use, and uh, Paul here, uh, the, the language of spirit. And Jesus and Paul together want to say that it's actually not enough to quell the desires of the flesh if you don't deal with something that is deeper down in, inside of your spirit or in your heart, right? If you don't fix that, well then you can only manage the flesh sin side for so long until up pops a real problem. If you don't know what I'm talking about or, or you haven't experienced this at some point in your life, my guess is one, you probably will. But two, this is how the human nature works. We can only push down for so long until what's really happening inside makes its way out of us, right? This is at least the way that Jesus describes how human nature works. We must solve the heart problem, the spirit problem. And so this is what Paul is saying. He says, are you really trying to say that you began with the spirit problem and you solved that and now you're going to move to the flesh problem? No, no, you've got, you've got it backward, right? That's not how this works. And so then he goes on and he says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you, God, and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law, or hearing with faith, right? And there it is, the dichotomy again, faith and works of the law. Before we continue, uh, it should be said that Paul has, uh, has begun a series of arguments 
to back himself up and to, to make the point that he's trying to make in his thesis that we've already talked about, right? And it is interesting to me that what he begins with here is not some kind of um, scriptural refutation of like the, the Jewish Christian viewpoint that you have to keep the whole law. This is not where he begins. He gets there. He's actually right about to get there. He begins with the experience of these people. He begins with what happens to them in their real lives. And he points to something. He points to an event. And he says, you have the Holy Spirit in you. I know that you've experienced the Holy Spirit in some fashion in your life. And you should allow that experience of the Spirit to inform how you think about other pieces. In uh, some circles that I uh, keep uh, there, the Wesleyan circles, I'll just say it, uh, there's what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I, I talked about it before, but it's, it's worth reiterating if you don't know what this is. Uh, the idea of the Wesleyan quadrilateral is, uh, is it's kind of a, a way to name the different ways we come at um, establishing a groundwork for truth, okay? And, and the various ways, uh, this comes out of Wesley's theology, John Wesley, um, uh, one would be scripture, okay? The quadrilateral means there's four. Uh, one would be scripture, right? One would be like reason, you kind of think your way to it. Uh, one would be tradition, so, well, this is how the church has always done things, right? Uh, and then the last would be experience. These are the four parts to the Wesleyan quadrilateral, okay? Most often, uh, conservatives want to use the uh, two of the four, and they'll, they'll say, uh, well, we should appeal to scripture, and we should appeal to tradition, Right? And, uh, and for good reason, because uh, you're pointing back to the, the tradition that gave you the faith that you are, are, are standing on and, and, and sitting in and, and operating under, right? And then uh, uh, more liberal-minded folks are going to uh, point toward uh, the other two. Well, you've got to use your head uh, and reason, uh, or you use your experience. And here's what I would simply say to you. Uh, the quadrilateral is a quadrilateral for a reason, and that is, I think all four actually have a part to play in how we understand this thing called truth, in understanding the way God works in our world, and we cannot ignore, for example, the experiences of our life and just say, well, those weren't real, or that's different. Uh, Paul certainly doesn't do this. Paul points to their says, you had a profound experience with God. That should mean something. I've told you to do this too, by the way. I, I've said, you should remember those times in your life when God has shown up in a powerful way, and you should make markers in your life, right? And, and you should remember them because times will get choppy, and you'll need to be reminded of those times where God did show up. And then you should also anchor what it is that you do 
and what you believe in the Word of God, in Scripture. And so what we find is Paul doing both of these things. He begins with an appeal to their direct experience because, I'll be honest, whether you realize it or not, that is where we are most likely to be persuaded. If I can somehow touch uh, something that you've experienced personally, then I'm getting closer to something that is of deep value to you. And then I pull that out and I anchor it in the word of God. That makes for a powerful message. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here. So he begins with their experience with the Holy Spirit. Um, It's worth saying this. We'd like to think that Paul was a good Baptist. And I don't know. I'm sure there's an argument to be made that he is. Uh, certainly some Baptist along the way has wanted to, I don't care to do that myself. Uh, in this chapter, Paul's a good Pentecostal. Let me just say that, okay? He is going to say that your encounter with the Holy Spirit is of deep significance and that some kind of manifestation of it, and he even says here, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and even works miracles among you, right, do so by works of the law or hearing with faith, right? Uh, and so he's, uh, in this way, the Pentecostal, by the way, is, is somebody, if you don't know, uh, is somebody who's, who's desiring a, a, a movement of the Spirit. Sometimes they get charismatic and they, they lift their hands. Believe it or not, they lift their hands in a worship service. Uh, and they're hoping and praying uh, for uh, the Holy Spirit to be poured out and, and for revival to happen, right? Uh, and uh, it's actually a joyous uh, body of people to worship with if you ever get the chance. Uh, there's usually a lot of energy and excitement in that kind of body. And then Paul anchors it in Scripture. It's remarkable how he does. And he begins his argument from Scripture in verse 6. He turns to Abraham. He turns to the book of Genesis. And uh, he, well, says this. Just as Abraham, quote, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? And here he's quoting from Genesis 15, 6. And in this passage, you have two words that are of deep importance to Paul that he wants to pull together. The first is belief, right? I believe in God, which is simply another, this is where English infuriates me, it's another word for faith, okay? Belief and faith. If you, these are, this is the same Greek word, essentially. Uh, and uh, so if you see believe, you should think faith. Paul wants to pull on this faith thread throughout. Uh, and he also wants to pull on the righteousness thread, right? And so he's asking the question, how are we made righteous? And the answer is not works of the law, right? It's faith. And so he says, look, Genesis 15, 6, there it is. Abraham, the forefather of it all, he had faith, and the faith was counted to him as righteousness. All right, so this is where he goes with this. Verse 7, he continues. Now then, 
that it is those of, know then, excuse me, uh, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, make righteous, again, a an English problem we've got, righteous and justify. These are the same words, just kind of every time you see them, just pull them together, they mean the same thing. Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify or make righteous the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Right? And this is Genesis 12. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. A few key buzzwords are popping up already. We've got, of course, faith. We've got, of course, works. We've got, uh, we've got uh, the gospel buzzword is a huge one. Um, but this word, bless, this is going to be one that uh, Paul pulls out of Genesis 12, and he's going to come back to it a few times throughout this. And he's going to set up another dichotomy because he's going to talk about blessing and that you and I want to be part of the blessing. I assure you this, right? This is, uh, right, uh, this is another way of essentially saying you're part of the righteous ones. The other side to this, what's the opposite of blessing? Cursing. Yeah, what do you think comes next, right? He, well, then he moves into the fact that the law actually is, is doing the cursing. And so he sets up this other dichotomy. And so in verse uh, 10, he continues and he says, for all who rely on works of the law, the problem, they are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everybody who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And there he quotes from the law itself, Deuteronomy 27, 26, right? This is where he's quoting from. And he's saying that, look, if, if you don't do it all, then you're cursed. Now, let me just stop a second and say, Paul, Paul was a good first century Jew, okay? And then he meets Christ on the road to Damascus, and in my humble opinion, and so many others, he retains his Jewish nature, but he believes that it's been fulfilled in Christ. And so he thinks of himself, almost certainly, as a Jew, living in the first century, even after meeting Christ. But he is a very odd Jew in this passage right here, and in this way specifically, because he says... He says that cursed is everyone who is under the law. And his idea here is that no one is capable of fulfilling the whole law. Now, this is unique among Jewish uh, folks in the first century, for sure. The idea that you might be able to fulfill the whole law, I, I think many would have said, yeah, I can, we can do that. We, we've got ways to do that. And Paul's saying, nope. No, if uh, over a thousand years of Jewish history tell us anything, it's that actually we can't keep it. In fact, we keep messing the thing up. Like we, we try to keep the law, sure, but then we realize we fail. And again, especially adults in the room, like if, 
if you don't resonate with that, the, the idea that you know what's right in life, and then you still, for some reason or another, you, can't, you just can't do it sometimes. Life's hard. <laughs> Paul knows this. And he knows that keeping the law is, well, frankly, impossible. And so the, the, the conclusion he comes to is that we can't keep the law. And because we can't keep the law, the law tells us that, bad news, we're under a curse. <laughs> the law itself says so. This is on its way. So he says that now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, right? You can't be justified by doing the thing that you're not capable of doing. And then he says, for, quote, the righteous shall live by faith. And here again, he's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. He does this in a couple other spots, by the way. Uh, uh, once in Romans, uh, the author of Hebrews does this as well. And he's pulling together the two strands, right? Faith and righteousness. And he's saying these two things go together. Faith and righteousness. And then he goes on in verse 12. But the law, the law, it's not of faith. Rather, as Leviticus 18.5 says, the one who does them shall, uh, yeah, the one who does them shall live by them. And so Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So if the law is a curse, Christ redeems us from this curse. But how? Very clearly here, by becoming a curse for us. And so Christ, the innocent one, takes on all the curses of humanity and piles them on his own self, and he hangs on a tree. And as it says again in the law itself, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then in verse 14 is kind of the climax of this entire passage that we've read to this point. He pulls together like all of the buzzwords and he throws them all into one, one sentence or one verse. And he says, so that in Christ, there's a buzzword, in Christ. This is a, a, he loves to use this phrase. So if Christ's faith is what makes us righteous, the next question is, well, how do we take part in that? Well, we do it by being in Christ, right? This is a phrase he will use again and again and again and again. We want to be in Christ, and we want Christ to be in us. So that in Christ, Jesus, the next buzzword, blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive, another buzzword, the promised, another buzzword, spirit, through, final buzzword, faith, right? The promised spirit through faith. I'm going to stop us here. He goes on to talk about the promises that are made to Abraham and the promise being made to the, uh, the, um, the I always mess this up, offspring of Abraham, right? And the offspring of Abraham is Jesus. But it's worth asking, good question to ask is, what are the promises that he's referring to here 
that we're receiving when he says that the promised spirit is received through faith. To answer this, you can't actually turn to the book of Genesis because that's not where you're going to find what he's talking about. You have to turn to the prophets. You have to ask the question, well, in what way is the spirit poured out? And here he, he would probably turn you to uh, maybe Joel 2, maybe uh, Isaiah 44, uh, maybe Ezekiel 39. I'm going to briefly read these to you. Ezekiel 39, 29. God says, I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And here Ezekiel's envisioning a future time where God makes real his promises that his own spirit is going to be poured out on a people. Or Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Here again, a people in exile are brought home and the spirit of God descends upon them. And we could all read Joel 2 in which the spirit is poured out on the people and then this gets echoed by Jesus, right? And in John chapter 15, what do we find? We find that Jesus says to his disciples that he needs to go away. He needs to die, be resurrected, but he also needs to ascend to heaven. Why? So that the Spirit can be poured out. And he says in John 15, 26 and 27, But when the Helper, the Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And this is what Paul is referring to. This is the spirit that has been poured out on these Gentiles, on these Galatian people. It's the exact thing that happens in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And it's what Paul is referring to as the promise, right? And so there's this promised spirit that gets poured out on these people upon us that we have access to. And Paul says, how? Well, it is through faith, right? Before today, or before this week, and, and, and actually the weeks leading up to this, I'm not sure how I would have preached all the business about the Spirit. But uh, something happened in my life, and, uh, and you might be aware of it, and in the life of people that I love and care about, and in a place that I care about, in Wilmore, Kentucky, the, uh, there was an outpouring uh, of the Spirit. Have you followed the news with this? Do you know what, what I'm talking about? If not, a um, couple weeks ago, th two and a half weeks ago now, uh, <clears throat> there, there was a simple chapel uh, on a Wednesday where the chapel speaker, uh, <laughs> he delivered a normal message by all accounts. And uh, there was a group of uh, college students who came forward and just began to pray. And they began to repent. And they began to, to pour out their, their hearts to Jesus. And something stayed. The Spirit stayed. 
And then more people joined, and then more people joined, and, and slowly over a couple days, uh, the campus was abuzz with the fact that, hey, there's, there's something happening here. And then pretty soon, uh, the surrounding towns and, and, uh, and other parts of Kentucky are saying, huh, something, something's happening. And then pretty soon, of course, social media gets hold of it, and people are flying in from literally across the world uh, so that uh, this small town of Wilmore, uh, a place where I went... Uh, I spent my senior year of high school there. I went to college with Kendall uh, at, the, at the college in the town where this was happening. Um, I know the land well. It holds 5,000 people. Like, it has two stoplights uh, at, in this town. And 50,000 people <laughs> descended upon this very small town. Uh, and it was remarkable. Um, my time in this town uh, was one that was, uh, I would say, spirit-filled. I, I did desire to actually go visit because I desired to be reminded um, of my own experiences in that very chapel, in that very town, uh, where God met me and where I felt the Spirit of God rest uh, upon my life and caused me to do things that other people might think were crazy, like fly halfway across the world and, and do a mission trip in Papua New Guinea, or uh, spend way too many years in school uh, at uh, a seminary and a, a university. And, um, and I can locate a lot of what happened there uh, in my life to that place, and the spirits moving in that place. And so when I read, when I read uh, Galatians chapter 3 in light of the event that took place and was taking place over the last two and a half weeks, I think of something real. I, I think of Paul coming to me and saying, oh foolish Eric, <laughs> remember what happened in your life all those years ago? the experiences you've had with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and yet, somehow, you still sometimes doubt. And yet, sometimes, you wonder. And, 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 and yet, sometimes, you, 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 uh, you think, there's more yet to do. Oh, foolish Eric, just let it down. Put the burden down. The faith of Jesus Christ is enough. And it's enough for you, Eric, and it's enough for you. And that is good news. Because we can't do it. But Jesus has done it. We can't break the curse. Jesus has done it for us. The blessing is not ours because our, we can work our way to it. The blessing is ours because we are in Christ. We have heard with faith. And we rejoice. May we be those kinds of people, spirit-filled people. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are good. You give us good things. You lavish your goodness upon us. May we rest in the faith May we know that that's enough. 
may we not try to add to it or, or do more, but may we understand that what you did on the cross, that was enough, that you've done it for us, that you offer forgiveness of sins, that you offer resurrection, that you offer new life, you offer blessing, you offer hope. God, you offer your spirit within us to work in us and to dwell in us and to change us and to direct the course of our lives. May we trust that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.